Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of songwriters separated by a generation, but united by a serious dedication to the craft, Carl Newman and Liam Kazar. Carl Newman, aka AC Newman, is best known as the gravitational center of the new pornographers, the lark of a supergroup that he started back in 1997, but that quickly found great enough success that it became his main gig. As you perhaps already know, the band also features the prodigious talents of Nico Case and Destroyer's Dan Behar, though Newman does the vast majority of the songwriting. The band's latest album is 2019's In the Morse Code of Breaklights, but as you'll hear, maybe for the first time in this conversation, they've spent part of the pandemic working on a new one. If that's not enough, the band's classic debut, Mass Romantic, has just been reissued on vinyl, and in November and December, the new pornographers will do a tour on which they perform both that album and 2005's Twin Cinema in their entirety. Can't wait for those. Newman has also been spending some time on Twitter in the past couple of years, and that's how he heard about Liam Kazar's song, Shoes Too Tight. It's kind of tough to say. Another TalkHouse guest from this year, Eric Slick, tweeted about the song, and Newman heartily endorsed it. It's from Kazar's debut solo album, Due North, which came out earlier this year on Kevin Morby's new label, Mare Records. And while it may be his first album as a solo artist, it's far from the first thing Kazar has done. He was part of the Chicago collective Kids These Days, which also featured Vic Mensa, And he's part of the band Tweedy with his pal Spencer Tweedy and Spencer's famous dad, Jeff. But Due North is the first time that Kazar has been front and center as a songwriter, and he sounds like an old soul. Check out a little bit of the song that first turned Carl Newman onto Liam's music, Shoes Too Tight. Kazar talk a lot about songwriting on this podcast, and they also get into social media, Liam's talented family, and lots more. Enjoy. It's funny, I heard of you last year because Eric Slick tweeted about how much he liked Shoes Too Tight, and I thought, I'm going to check this out, and I put it on and I instantly loved it. And the other act he tweeted about was Ohm. And then it was a few months later that I realized, hey, they're brother and sister. Okay. Yeah. Were you a, a really artsy family? I mean, what, what was your story like growing up? Because I know you and your sister are very creative. And I know your dad worked in the Obama administration because when I tweeted about how much I loved your song, he retweeted it. And I thought, who's this guy from the Obama administration? <laughs> And that's dad. Okay. And we have different uh, last names publicly. So, Mm. and sometimes I'll pick a fight with him on Twitter. And people are like, why is this indie rock dude picking a fight with this random guy who worked for Obama? My dad had like a bunch of gear set up in the basement. So we just were always the place where like friends would go and play music. That's kind of how I got started playing music with Spencer Tweedy. Mm -hmm. And... Few of the people in my band I've been playing with since I was, you know, 13 or 14. I've sort of like come back to where I started. 
So, yeah, it was definitely a creative house. Like, my dad had all this gear. My sister was already writing songs by the time I started learning music. And then my mom's a painter. Why did your dad have so much gear? Well, he actually has this amazing P-Bass, this 1969 P-Bass that somebody traded him instead of rent when they were roommates together. We still have that. still, like, my favorite bass I've ever played. He was just a music fan his whole life. He grew up in New York and played music with his family and just sort of accumulated gear over 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. And then when he moved to Chicago, my mom was a, at the Art Institute in school, and he was kind of just sort of bumming around playing music before he sort of did more of like a job thing. So were they, were they there in 1968? No, no. My dad was more in like the, you know, the Greenwich Village, like late 70s CBGB scene. That Yeah, okay. They're more that age, yeah. Yeah, so he would have been he would have been a little too young to get beaten up by cops. Yes, exactly. Okay, so that's cool. So, I mean, that's kind of the dream for parents when they present all this creative gear for their children and their children use it. Yeah, <laughs> and still use it. I mean, yeah. my sister's main guitar is still... It's, it's actually a different guitar, but she stole the pickups from, like, one of my dad's guitars that... It was like the one we learned to play guitar on. It's still some of mm-hmm. the best gear. Like uh, I recorded the record in my family studio that my sister runs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some of the best gear is still the stuff that my dad sort of just left down there from when we were kids. Did you learn home recording at the same time as you were learning to play? No, that was the one thing that was tried to be pressed upon me, but I've just never been a computer kid ever or even like a tape kid yeah yeah i i feel the same way i've kind of been forced into it Mm -hmm. like for me it was like if i wanted to keep making music during the pandemic it was get better on digital performer or you're done (laughs) so yeah yeah so i don't really want to do it but yeah but i mean i was wondering because your record sounds really good like, it's so classic sounding. It sounds like a record that was made by somebody who has some very fierce ideas about recording. I think a lot of that has to do... Spencer Tweedy is a computer home recording. Like, he does get super into that. He played drums on my record, and, mm-hmm. you know, all the drum sounds are... He would set up the mics for his drum sounds and then go record. And I would just sort of, like, press record and stop for him when mm-hmm. he was doing drum parts. But I also just wanted the record to sound really direct. So there's like very little reverb and stuff like on vocals or on any guitars, really. And so that helped us sort of keep the sound like kind of trim and consistent. There was like this Al Green record, the Bell album, where like just everything is super like direct and like recorded closely. Mm -hmm. And I think you can kind of it's like when you sort of start messing with like making things humongous that, you know, your gear sort of shows its itself. But if you keep it kind of, like, dead and, like, mellow, at least, like, the sound of the room-wise, I think you can get some great sounds. It gives you a sort of naturally 70s sound, like Fleetwood Mac or Steely Dan. You know, there's this great kind of direct dryness there. So what, when did you pick up the guitar? Like, when did you start playing? Or it, maybe it wasn't guitar. Well, I started playing piano when I was, like, like seven, but I hated it. I picked up guitar in 13, and I was better at guitar in six months than I was of like six years of playing piano. I just immediately took the guitar. And I just have like sort of a lot of little sibling 
energy in me. Like I played piano because my sister played piano. I wrote songs because my sister wrote songs. I played mm-hmm. guitar. And then it wasn't until guitar that I like sort of then went off on my own thing and like was learning Jimi Hendrix solos and stuff like that. And then started playing with other people too. That was the thing that made me get better quicker was playing with other people. I didn't pick up guitar till I was 18. I'm still not that good. You talk about playing with people. How soon was it that Kids These Days became your band? So that was by the time I was 15, I would say. So 13, I started playing with other people. By 15, I was like, by day, just like a total jazz, upright bass nerd doing that nonstop. And then by night, sort of playing in this hip-hop sort of music collective. But by 15 or so was when it was like just music all the time and school sort of school sort of slipped away for me around then Mm -hmm. yeah so you didn't play did you play any music before 18 or what was music like for you before 18 yeah nobody nobody in my family played music we had an out-of-tune piano in the basement i remember and every few months my mom would say we should tune that but we never did (laughs) i don't know I, i was just a big music fan a friend of mine showed me some chords and i just started going I still really feel in my heart that me being a musician is me, like, fighting my fate. I don't think it's what I was meant to be. I think if my music has any appeal to people, it's because it's the sound of a person who who won't accept his destiny. (laughs) I think one of the reasons your music appeals to people is because it's so melody-driven. That's what I love about your music. I just love the taking the time to, like, work out a melody, you know? You can tell when somebody's sort of just sort of riffing out a melody and they're sort of attaching themselves to the first thing that came to mind. Mm -hmm. Not that, you know, a lot of times the first ideas is sort of a divine thing that's worth preserving. But I I don't know. I Like my old band, we used to cover that tune of yours, three or four. We just love that song. Oh, cool. I mean, it's an amazing example of taking a couple of just chords and building the whole song around a bunch of different little chords. I think that that's what I attached to when I first listened to New Pornographers was just melody, like somebody that's clearly trying to work out a melody. That's true. I really think that is the one thing, that is the part of music that for me I think is easy. Like you could give me a piece of music, you know, and that has no melody on it, and I I could very quickly go, here are 10 different melodies. You know, but I feel like that's very different from being able to play Hendrix solos. You know, like I wish I could play Hendrix solos, you know, (laughs) like to me, like coming up with melodies, it feels like just like a parlor trick. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like anybody can do this. Like blah, 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 la di da. So uh, even though I know there is a craft to it, but I mean, I mean, for you, that's a good way to lead in. Like, where do you start with music? I start with melody usually. And then you know, that turns into the melody and the chords. You're like, what goes with the melody? And then, you know, I go from there, but what, how's it for you? I'd say mostly I'm, I'm sitting around with like a guitar and I get to like hum a melody and a couple chords and I do that for like an hour. And that's sort of how a song starts. Mm-hmm. And I typically in the past when I was like in bands and I like want to see my vision like come to fruition before it gets tainted or whatever, I would like completely overwrite the song because I like, I don't want it to get pulled away from me or something like that. Mm -hmm. That was just sort of being young and like insecure or something like that, or not knowing how to like work with people. (laughs) Yeah. And then, 
as I've like gotten a bit older, and particularly with this record, I wasn't worried about like the songs getting away from me. That like I purposefully came into the studio with like quarter written songs and do like a small session of ideas and then go back to the drawing board on them and then come back and wrap them up a little bit more and then go back and then come back and do like some overdubs or whatever. I like doing that as well. You know, because I think like when you talk about when you overwrite, like after years and years of personally doing the same thing, you realize like, what's the point of even thinking I'm finished? So I'll go in and I'll sing lyrics and I'll think, well, who cares that they're not the final lyrics? Who cares if this isn't the melody you're going to use? You might spend the day working and the only thing you'll keep is the beat. You'll go, that's a great beat. But, you know, that's part of the process. It took me like a whole year just to figure out what sort of palette I was using on the record. I was trying to reconcile two, like, the two, like, sort of color instruments on the record that I really wanted to use, which was pedal steel and synthesizer. Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to make a record where they were like the garnish and figuring out how to do that was really hard. How to like not make it sound like they were just sort of stuck on top of these songs was, took me a long time. Cause those were like two instruments I'd never used on a record really. Yeah. But front to back, I was like working on it and recording it for about three years. God, it's, I mean, I'm in the, I'm at the end of making a record and uh, yeah, it's maddening how, especially, you know, COVID, the pandemic doesn't help. Yeah, it really doesn't help. I feel like it's, it's like, you know, after like Trump got elected and every, you know, news anchor was asking comedians like, oh, this is gold for you. Isn't this going to be amazing? And mm -hmm. every comedian was like, no, God damn it. It's awful. <laughs> Yeah. And I feel the same way about COVID for musicians. It's like, no, this has not been great. <laughs> I'm working on a record that I essentially started at the beginning of COVID. Like when March of 2020 came along, I thought, I'm going to use this time. I'm going to go in my studio and I'm going to make a record. It's close to done, but I'm still working on it. And, you know, while you're slaving away on this thing, you see like, oh, Taylor Swift made two records in the space of six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. And you're like, the Mountain Goats have released three records during the pandemic. Right, and, uh, right. and, and I'm thinking like, good God, is it going to be like D'Angelo or uh, Guns N' Roses? Is this going to be like the record that it's been 10 years on? Right. Also, it's stressful when music becomes your job, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. when because sometimes I'm in the studio or I'm trying to write and I just feel like I don't know how to do this. <laughs> It's like my job, I have to support my family and I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know how to do my job. Do you record and write all at the same time, like in the studio? Yeah. Is it all one process sort of for you? In fact, like mixing, I consider a song not done until the mixing is done. Even on the record I'm working on now, I go to the uh, engineer, mixer and say, can you just give me a version, like an instrumental version? You know, and so I'll take the song that I thought was finished and I just tossed out the vocals. And I thought, yeah. I, liked, I, liked, I like the music, but I'm just going to sing over it again. And it's usually like, you know, the lyrics rewritten and a different melody. It's a kind of madness because, you know, obviously you can see where that goes. It reminds me of a Roy Thomas Baker, I think, was talking about recording Bohemian Rhapsody. And he said... He said, if we had uh, Pro Tools back then, we'd still be recording it. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think about that. Like, yeah, it's too, it's too easy. Yeah. It's too easy for us just to go back and go, okay, let's, let's rework it.
I'm impressed with people that can sort of jump back and forth between recording process and the writing process. My friend uh, Spencer can do it. My friend Sam, who makes my record, can do it incredibly. It blows my mind. I really, I really struggle with it. But um, I appreciate the like scrapping the vocal thing and just sort of starting over. I think there's some tunes on like Graceland where Paul Simon did that and mm-hmm. just sort of had the backing track. Or I know with like Young Americans, like all those songs were just the backing tracks were com- like almost completely done, and then just wrote the song on top of that. That sounds cool. I've never done that, but that sounds like a cool way to do it. I've been in band situations where I found it very frustrating where sometimes you think it's not right. You know, like, this isn't right. It's not there. But then the band is going, no, leave it. We're leaving it. You know, and and I'm the one going, no, no, we got to redo it. And I found that so upsetting. I thought, I don't ever want to be there again. I like being able to sit there and go, something bugs me about the song and I'm going to fix it. Like, I'm going to change it. Like, I I don't have to let go of it. I've been thinking about on this record even how it would be fun to just make five versions of every song. Just go like, I didn't know what this song should be. Like, you know, here it is, it's a stark piano ballad. Here it's a pop song. Here it's electronic. Just, you know, because there's so many, there's so many choices. And I think, why well, don't, you know, I wish I could just put them all out there. Yeah, well, I have about five versions of a lot, a lot of songs on my record. That song, Shoes Too Tight, started out as like a, like an all things must pass ballad. Mm-hmm. And then, I was just so bored of myself listening to it that I had to start over. That feeling of I'm so bored with myself, I've been going through that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Again, maybe it's the pandemic, but just like, ah, I'm just so sick of myself. Is this an AC Newman record or is it a new pornographer's record? No, it's, it's a pornographer's record. So are you, are you all just, are you sending things around to people and stuff or? Mainly just sending them around. Like Catherine, who plays keyboards, she basically has like a, a full studio in her house. Her husband, his name's Colin Stewart, and he records a lot of records. Like he did the first couple Black Mountain records. So she's got a functioning studio in her house. John, who recorded a lot of our records, he has a studio set up in his house. Our guitar player does as well. Nico lives about four hours from me, no, about five hours from me. So the irony of all of this is that I've seen her more than I've ever seen her before. You know, because she, she, she used to be the hardest person to nail down. But now I, I just say, OK, well, you want to come here and stay at our cottage or should I come up and see you? So that part of it has been nice. It's odd that Nico and I have been doing a lot more work together than we've ever done in our life. We've always been like, you know, the band that's like sending overdubs to each other and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the guy who produced the record with me, his name's James Elkington, and that was all over email, basically. Like, just a lot of, just sending him every version of the song, like after every session or whatever, sending it to him, and then a week later, just get on the phone and just talk, you know? Mm -hmm. And just like, ah, that verse isn't very good, or, you know, you could do some pedal steel here, because he played pedal steel on the record. And then a few of the songs that he just like literally is just cutting up like the shape of the song because it's a lot of the songs started out as just loops and just like, Mm -hmm. well, this is a loop of the verse idea. This is a loop of like the chorus idea. Turn it into something. I think he maybe came over to my house like 
once, maybe twice in the whole process of making the record to like work on it. It all sounds very live. I guess that's how it is with any song. The whole game is to mask the creative process, you know? Like, nobody needs to know how you did it. To me, it sounds like this beautiful song that's poured out of your brain, and then you walked into a room with some players, and then... Right. That's like, you know, you got to respect Kubrick for, like, incinerating all his, like, B-roll and stuff. It's like, you don't need to know how I made this thing. I just, I made it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. I'm kind of interested in kids these days. You were in that band for four years and you were a teenager. I mean, was that exciting? Did it mess with your brain? Did it feel triumphant? Did it feel disappointing? Did it feel like all of it? It felt quite triumphant in high school because we would like fly to LA on a weekend or something like that and do like you know, play for like major labels and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and then f- do a red a red eye home Sunday night and go from the airport straight to school with our suitcases and stuff, mm-hmm. which was ridiculous. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. We were in high school. Our senior year of high school, it was a seven piece band, but four of us were like still in high school when we started touring, mm-hmm. and like mixed. You know, went down to South by Southwest when we were. 17 and missed a week of school, you know, to go play shows. Like, that's cool. Yeah. And that also sort of, the fact that we were kind of in it together emboldened us all to, like, 
say like, no, we're going to actually do this. You know, I think if it was just one of us that was, or, you know, if it was like just one of us saying, let's skip college and get in a van, you know, if we were in a band with older people or whatever, then we'd probably been like, ah, I don't know, I'm going to, I should just go to college. But it was like four of us all like together being like, or even more that were like, no, let's do this thing. Let's get in the van. Let's go around and and that first year of touring, you know, literally making zero money except for our per diems, but we were psyched. Yeah, but who cares? Who cares? <laughs> I know I know how to survive on $10 a day. Mm-hmm. And I'm going around and playing at all my friends' colleges, you know. That was super fun. All my memories of that band are, you know, pretty fun or ridiculous. Like, I can't believe we were 18 and on a tour through a blizzard in Colorado scaling a mountain because that was the only free place to stay. Like, I would never, never let my kid do something like that. I think it being sort of a, a good thing that we all sort of moved on to a different thing because if you see the people that were in that band, like, where they're at now, like, there's mm-hmm. so much growth that happened that I don't think could have ever happened had we, like, turned that thing into, like, a full-on, like, this is your job, you got to go play this in this band six months out of the year. Like Macy Stewart, she does strings for everybody's record out of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And she's like an incredible improviser. And she's in her own universe that I'm in a part of sometimes. Vic Mensa is like a whole, you know, he's one of the greatest rappers around, I think. And then Nico Segal, who played trumpet in the band, you know, went on to play with like Chance the Rapper. And people have done so many things that I just feel like that band did what it was needed to do. And then we all sort of moved on in a great way. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great thing. I guess that's the problem with having like too many talented people. (laughs) It's hard to make them all fit together and and into a unified thing. Yeah, we had seven people that knew exactly what they wanted to do. And it wasn't always the same thing. So was that what basically broke the band up? Yeah, I essentially was like the one that ended up making the call and really the final thing for me was when I started hearing Vic's solo music and I was like, this is really good. And, and, and my opinion was that it was better than kids these days stuff. And I really felt like I want to be more of a songwriter. It seems like you were all pretty mature about the whole thing. You know, I think if I had tried to be in a band with like uh, six people and we were all eight, 17 or 18, it would have been absolute chaos. You know, there was a moment that I thought it was chaos when I was in the thick of it. But then as I've gotten older and turned around and seen other bands, I realized we didn't even come close to chaos. When the band broke up, you and Macy started another band, right? Yeah, we started another band called Marrow and put out one record and toured around a bit. But then I started sort of touring with Jeff Tweedy a lot and that sort of became like a full-on gig for a while. And then because I was away all the time, Macy and my sister Seema started Ohm, sort of like in my absence. And it was a similar thing of just like, damn, this band is, there's, you know, and still to this day, I've just been like blown away whenever I see that band live. It's so much, I mean, they're both super talented, but there's something beyond. It's like greater than some of its parts. I'd love to see them. I love the last record. I think that was so, so good. I mean, seeing them live, what they do vocally is just un- unreal. 
and mm-hmm. I know how to I know how to sing sort of lead or like sing a tune, but they know how to use their voices as like instruments, and they do. Do you think so? Like kids these days was we always called it like a collective. Is New Pornographers a band to you? Do you think of it as a band? I guess it is now. I was in a band called Zampano. We got signed to Sub Pop, and I think I was deluded into thinking, oh, like, we're going to be popular. So I felt like I went through this couple of years, like, and the band kind of fell apart, and I wanted to do something else, but I didn't really... I came out the other side kind of more, more of a purist. Like, who cares about labels? Like, who cares about the business? Just try and make good music. I think I'd also gotten past any kind of delusion that I was any kind of star. Not that I ever thought that. So I thought I wanted to be in a band that was other people. Like, I I didn't want to be the center of the band. So I liked Dan Behar. He was starting to play Destroyer stuff. And I said, let's do some stuff together. And I met Nico and I said, hey, you know, why don't you do this thing with me too? And it was kind of just on the back burner. And even when we made our first record, I remember the guy from the label Mint Records saying, like, are you going to do a second record? And I thought, I mean, I don't know. I thought only if people want us to. Like, I thought if this record comes out and nobody cares, I imagine we probably won't do another one. It was weird that this band that was started just with no delusions that we were going to succeed all of a sudden became popular. And then it's been like 20 years of dealing with the problems. I mean, it's been great. But also the problems of being this band where it's become what I do for a living, but it's also, but for Nico, she's got her career, you know? So it might be my main thing, but it's Nico's side thing. And, you know, and Dan only plays with us occasionally now, but it was the same thing with Dan. Destroyer was his main thing, but he was also a part of this. And so I was thinking, how do you navigate this? And so a long way to answer the question, but... Yeah, I think we're barely a band, but but we are. But there are times when we get together and I think, wow, we rule, <laughs> you know, but but uh, I think wow, it's cool to be in a band like like this December. We're doing we're doing those like reunion shows where one night we're playing the first album and the second night we're playing Twin Cinema. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's even though the band is still together, it feels like a reunion tour. Like, oh, we're getting everybody's getting together and we're going to play the old songs. And uh, I feel like I want to show up and have like a long white beard. Like, I just want to look as, I just want to look as old as possible. (laughs) I mean, the idea of a band at this point in history, it seems like almost a quaint idea. Like, you know what I mean? Like, do people even want rock bands anymore? Right. And then there's the, the logistics of who can afford to tour as a rock band, you know, like, even popular bands, you know, have the expenses of going on the road are, it's hard to do. There's a few select ones out there and it, it does feel that way. I was talking to Will, Will from Ockerville River. He had this theory that every year there was only one band that was allowed to be the critically acclaimed band. <laughs> like any, any year only has room for one. So like a few years ago, it was the war on drugs, you know, right. Right. <laughs> or like, or the next year it's like, Mac DeMarco or something. Maybe he was wrong, but I thought, yeah, it feels like a weird thing. Like your record almost sounds like a throwback record just because it's a cool sounding <laughs> group of songs. That it's clearly played by, you know, people. Yeah. But I, do, don't you think there's also something like 
through social media, the veil is like gone that like people understand the dynamics of how music is put together now. And nobody's really buying the fact that something is a true like band band the way we thought of it, because the truth is they almost never were, you know, mm -hmm. of just like a collective of people that just so happened stumbled into this thing. Very, very few bands are that, you know? Yeah. It's almost always the case where it's like a couple people sort of like steering this ship and then other people being involved with it. And that's as much a band as, you know, the other thing. But I just feel like through social media and people seeing what it is to be a musician a little bit more, that it's just the, the net curve leans towards like, a solo artist doing a, something like that. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. <laughs> yeah, let's get away from social media as quickly as possible. I never want to talk about it. <laughs> Is that true? Uh, I guess so. I'm on there plenty. I'm trying to get away from it. I honestly think of social media as an addiction. Like, for me, I think it's unhealthy. And I see other people, and I think it's clearly unhealthy for them, too. It's kind of upsetting when... There have been days where I pick up my phone and I will go to, like, Twitter without even realizing that I'm doing it. Or the worst is when you are on Twitter and then go out of Twitter and then go right back into Twitter without even thinking about it. <laughs> I'm currently trying to get off of Twitter in the same way that I... And it feels the same way when I decided, like, I'm going to stop drinking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, like, it, it, it just felt very similar like, uh, yeah. but, but I want to. It's like, no, don't do it. But it's fun. No, it's not. It might be fun for two seconds, but it's got too many negative consequences. Thank you for staying on Twitter long enough for my album cycle <laughs> to sort of come through. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I've learned through the years that nobody really cares what I think. So <laughs> <laughs> I will yell from the rooftops that people should love your record. <laughs> so it's basically, it's on Woodsist and it's also on Kevin Morby's label. Yeah, it's, Morby's label is an imprint of Woodsist. It's called Mare. And I, I think that label's a really cool thing. Morby wants his imprint to be nothing but debut releases. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming he doesn't really want to be the head of a record label. I'm assuming he just wants to take records he likes and just direct them, redirect mm -hmm. them in the right direction. Yeah. Foot in the door records, basically. Yes. Of course, you've, you've been dropped from his label, so you're going to have to find yeah. a new label. You know? <laughs> exactly. How often do you have, like, when you go into making a record, do you have, like, a batch from the previous thing that you're still in love with that you're going to at least sort of take into it or are you starting from scratch sort of every time sometimes i'll just gut songs like like if, it, if a song didn't make the record i'll just I'll, I'll look at it and try and be very harsh and go okay well why didn't it make the record you know and what's good and what's bad and maybe i'll like get rid of everything and go well the bridge is good maybe the bridge can be its own song mm -hmm. it's always been a combination of like uh sometimes yeah unused old ideas, songs torn apart. And there's always a song that I will write halfway through the album. You know, just because getting into the creative process just makes you want to write more. And so there's always like two or three songs that just show up along the way. With the last new Pornos record in the Morse Code of Breaklights, how early on were the themes of that record, mostly like lyrically, 
was that before you had written stuff or sort of as you were writing stuff? I think it was just as, as I was writing, you know, like sometimes like the same word shows up again or the same theme shows up again. And my initial response is, oh, I'm just repeating myself. But then I go, no, wait, this can be a theme. For 20 years, I've had to talk about the creative process. And I feel like every time I go, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, like, I feel like it's just, just fighting to get to the end so that the song doesn't bug me. That's the only place I want to get to. Just I, don't, I want to be able to listen to it and think it doesn't bug me anymore. You know, I can, mm-hmm. I can let it go. <laughs> as soon as I started sending my record around to a few friends, they all pointed out that I mentioned shoes in like the first three songs on the record. And they were like, is that a theme? And my immediate reaction was like, oh no, I'm a fraud. I said the <laughs> same word like in three songs. Uh, but I lied to them and told them that, yes, it was a theme and it was a very conscious decision. There are some very iconic things in this world. There are some very primal images. And I think the shoe is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is the, is, is the shoe that different from a car? You know, but there aren't enough shoe songs. I think we can still use more. I've been pretty obnoxious about it on Twitter in the last week, but I've been listening to like nothing but craft work. And when you're trying to write lyrics... It's just refreshing to put on a song that's just Kraftwerk going, music, nonstop, music, <laughs> nonstop. And you think, oh, this is, this is perfect. You know, this is, this is all you need. And you listen to all these songs, and it's just a very simple phrase repeated over and over again. And you remind yourself that, you know, maybe, maybe we're just beating ourselves up too much, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. like maybe shoes too tight would have been just as good if all you did was say, my shoes too tight, my shoes too tight, over and over again. In fact, it could have been a massive hit <laughs> if you just got rid of all the words and just said shoes too tight, like 50 times in a row. It's not too late, actually. <laughs> yeah, maybe I can, I don't know how you get that, like, that secret Spotify account where you can sort of keep updating things as you want. You know, Catherine, our keyboard player, was at a music conference and one of the head guys from Network, who are, you know, a pretty giant label management group, he said, just put out like 10 versions of every song. He said, like, put out a classical version of your song so it'll get on the classical station. Put out a jazz version of your song so it'll get on the jazz station. <laughs> just like every possible version. Flood the streaming platforms with like, you know. And I thought, well, that's kind of... It's alternately smart and kind of gross. Like, I, I, it kind of offends me, but I think about doing that sometimes. <laughs> when was the first time that you, like, sort of wrote lyrics for someone else, like, in, in the band? It was our first song we ever put out, Letter from an Occupant. And, um, yeah, I, it, it's funny. I've never, I've never written for anybody else. I just write. Like, I've been talking about the Bee Gees. I'm amazed that somebody can do that. Like that Barry Gibb would say, I'm going to write for Otis Redding. Right. And like, and, and, and I'm going to write something and it's going to sound just like Otis Redding. I've never been able to do that. The best I can do is sit down with Nico and go, I've written a song. What key should it be in? I'll replay the guitar in whatever key you want it to be in. I'm fascinated by writing for other people. I think it's really difficult. You seem to think that you've never written for other people, but as a listener, it seems like you totally do that. But, 
but I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We've always done things like I'll sing the verse and Nico will sing the chorus and we, we'll go back and forth and things like that. And it's really because I get to a point in the song and I can't sing that high, you know, because like, like arguably I'm not even writing for my own voice. I mean, that's the problem. Like I'm just writing songs and I'm thinking of like melody and I'm not concerned of whether or not I can hit that note. So I'll get to a point and I'll think, okay, well you take over here. And that's become sort of a style, but I never really meant it to be. It's just like, it's like we need, like some of my songs need like three or four octaves to be able to sing them. I've been working on something with Nico where I'm, I'm not writing the lyrics, but I'm writing where like she's giving me lyrics and I'm writing music for them, which I think is similar. And uh, I, I think that's very interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a different version of it. You're just trying to paint with the music and none of the lyrics at all. Being a musician, when you start getting older and you've been around for a long time, you start going, what's the end game here? You know, like, like everybody, everybody wants to break into doing soundtrack scores. That's the retirement plan for a musician, you know? <laughs> right. If you can start doing soundtracks, it's like you can just do those until you die and nobody will question it. It's happened only a couple times, but like getting like a group of singers together that are like singing something that I've written. Those have been some of my favorite moments ever, as opposed to showing somebody a set of chords or something like that. Just like people singing together is still always like the most intense, like hit me or like just goosebumps moments is usually vocals blending with each other. I think it's because... For me, when you're writing a song, it's hard not to just think of it as a bunch of chords and a bunch of words, you know? Mm-hmm. And they, you arrange them and they come together and they become a song. But when somebody else sings it, all of a sudden it's like, it's a song. Like, you realize this thing you made is completely separate from you. It's a powerful feeling. It's like, it, it suddenly dawns on you like, oh my God, it's a song. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I didn't just throw a bunch of words and chords together. I wrote a song like there are a few YouTube videos of of choirs singing our songs. And that's it's kind of powerful. I'm just so honored. Like you, you decided you wanted to sing one of my songs. That's it's hard to believe. I'm overcome every time. You know, it's just a, a set of ideas in this particular order is what the song is. It's not this thing that has to have, like, reverb, subchain, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's an idea, and it's in the air. The great thing about being a solo artist is nobody ever argues about songwriting, and we don't really argue about songwriting. But you know how, like, there are some people that think, like, oh, the, the drums are part of the song. And you go, well, no, the drums are part of the arrangement. You know, like, and the song itself is... Like Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, the song is essentially just an idea. And Dave Grohl's drums are absolutely kick-ass and they make it a classic. But, you know, but they're part of the arrangement. That's not, yeah. <laughs> that's not, that's not the song. The song are these four or five chords that, you know, Kurt Cobain put together. Or w- watching the, du- the Go-Go's documentary, it was interesting to listen to them talk about We Got the Beat because... We got the beat really is if you get rid of if you get rid of the drum beat and that cool bass line, there's not much to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But yet, you know, Charlotte Caffey, 
who wrote the song is the songwriter, but like, but the rhythm section, who are the ones that kind of made it, you know, they, they play the parts that we remember about the song. You know, it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting world. Sometimes it's very tangible. What is the song and what isn't? And every once in a while it, it isn't, you know, mm -hmm. and you're like, I don't know why, but that thing is part of the song. But for the most part, it's like, no, this is, this is, it's, you know, these chords, these lyrics, this rhythm or whatever. Well, you know, we live, we live five minutes down the road from the Levon Helm venue. My wife actually works there. So like the mythology of the band is, is such a part of this town. And, right. this, and so the songwriting is always brought up, you know, like did Robbie Robertson rip off all the other guys, you know, because he got all the songwriting and you think, well, you know, and that's, that's a weird one because they were such a band. You know, but at the heart of it, does anybody in the band claim that they wrote the weight? <laughs> you know, right. That one is difficult. Like, don't get me wrong. A Robbie Robertson interview is not very much fun to listen to. <laughs> but at a certain point, someone did sort of put like pen to paper on like those sets of lyrics. There's something so intangible about the connection between those musicians. Mm -hmm. But I haven't I haven't truly waded into the waters of like <laughs> which tune is which and all that sort of stuff you just know you just know the weight and the night they drove old dixie down yeah <laughs> or 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 basically whatever they played in the last waltz yeah right right no i i'm, I'm listening to um what is it northern lights and southern cross oh yeah that's from like mid late 70s right yeah, that record's great too. I was listening to that a lot in the kitchen when I was out on the East Coast. Anytime I go to that area, I start listening to the band or like the Bobby Charles record a lot more. You know what you should listen to if you haven't listened to it yet is um, Happy and Artie Traum. Have you heard of them? No. Happy's most well known because he recorded some songs with Dylan for Greatest Hits Volume 2. Mm -hmm. and, and he was friends with Dylan, you know, back in the day. But he and his brother... It's like tr Traum, like trauma with no A, T-R-A-U-M. Okay. They put out two records on Capitol in like, I think, 69 and 71. And the second one is called Double Back. And it's so good. It's one of those classic lost records. It feels like very much a piece of like, like Bobby Charles or the band. Like it, it comes from the same place. They were all friends. They probably played on each other's records. I know all this because he's my next door neighbor. So I, uh, I've become an expert on Happy Traum. I realized, yeah, we've been on, the, on this for quite a while. I actually have to go. I'm going on my first tour in the longest time. Nico is doing a little tour and I'm playing in her band and I'm opening for her just playing acoustically, which I've never done before. So, uh, oh, cool. But it was uh, cool to talk to you. Th these get edited, right? I sure hope so. <laughs> it was really great to talk, and thanks again for talking about the record. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, no problem. I, I love it. It's really, I was just listening to it right before this. It's just so good. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Carl Newman and Liam Kazar for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting services and social media channels. Today's episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.